electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Chris Verone. Coming up on Fast, Tesla zooming to a new all-time high. How are traders playing this record move? Plus, betting on BABA. Chris says the charts show this red-hot stock is building up for an even bigger breakout. And later, we'll tell you about the golden opportunity options traders are spotting in, spotting in the market. That trade ahead. But we start off with another big day for the markets. The Nasdaq posting another all-time high. This even as coronavirus cases continue to climb and more risks to reopening emerge. But we got some positive news on the economic front in the U.S. So, Guy, is that what markets are really watching? Have we become inured no. to this rise in coronavirus cases? I mean, the, the, you know, some of the data, we've had some really good data, but some really bad data. I don't think the market is, I mean, it seems to discount the bad. It seems to really get all geeked up on the good, which we've seen before over the years. But to me, it's still all about the liquidity that's being presented and um, put in the market by central banks globally. What, you know, again, I'm not pretending to be some raging bull. I'm not. I'm pretty outspoken about that. But we did say on June 26th, if you recall, we were encouraged by the fact that the market held that 3,000 level in the S&P 500, and it gave you something to trade against. I didn't think we'd be here today, quite frankly. But now the next level is the, the June 7th high, I think, of 3240 or thereabouts. I think that's what's in sort of the crosshairs of the market. It has to prove itself there. I, what I would say today that gives me a bit of pause uh, is the fact that the VIX is stubborn today. You know, held in or actually closed a tad higher. And this 26 and a half, 27 level in terms of the VIX is where we bounced off. Uh, back in early June, something to watch. The VIX, I noticed. I also noticed that the Russell 2000 small caps didn't really participate to the level that the broader markets did, which seems to be unusual for such a big market rally, Tim. Yeah, Russell's now down, uh, I think, you know, about 33% relative to the NASDAQ. To think about the underperformance, I think it's down uh, 18% uh, or so down year to date. And so the, the, the real growth and the economic sensitivity that small caps typically are a measure of, uh, I, I think, is, is right there in front of you. This has been about liquidity. Uh, the breadth of, of this rally is now getting very, very tight. Uh, and if you look at the underperformance of a lot of stocks to the NASDAQ, um, and obviously the NASDAQ to the S&P, it's outperformed the S&P by uh, almost 22% year to date. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, Friday's payroll number gave pretty good discussion into the weekend. People are assessing the, the, the relative, um, you know, better news flow coming from mortalities uh, or hospitalization rates. And I think that's how people are weighing. But there's no question that that the, the reopening of the economy, uh, while we're pretty sure there won't be, uh, you know, heavy uh, draconian, whatever you want to apply to what, what, what round was, round run was, but excuse me, you know, you have a case here where I think no matter what, the economy is opening and it's not great news because a lot of places are closing back down. The market is driven by liquidity right now. And, and I think that's really what we're seeing with the breadth. And it's right. And to that point, it's liquidity to the same names, Chris. And I'm wondering, in your view as a technician, should we care that it's this sort of narrow breadth, perceived breadth of, of big cap technology? I mean, Amazon going over 3000 for the first time. I mean, is that concerning to you? 
You know, I think it's a little overstated. This is certainly not as broad as it was, say, the first week of June. But let's distinguish between stuff not going up as much as the market and stuff going down. Because there's a lot of the former. There's not as much of the latter. I know airlines on a relative basis have been weaker. Banks have been weaker. But they're not going down in absolute terms. I think that's an important difference. When you look at the leadership fabric of this market, semis strong. We know that. Software strong biotech strong, but there are some new entrants. Materials acting a little bit better. Some of the transports, the trucking names, even the rail. So this is not as broad as it was a month ago, but I think calling this market dangerously narrow is a little overstated. Dan? Yeah, I, I, fine. Um, but, you know, there are certain manias going on here. You know, Amazon, you know, started going up before the market bottomed or at least made a bottom before the broad market did back in March. And I'll tell you, I'll just mention above 3000. Um, that puts it up 10 percent in four trading days, 10 percent on a one point five trillion dollar market cap. So you talk about what that's discounting. Do you know how many stocks in the S&P 500 have one hundred and fifty billion dollar market caps? What it just gained in the last week? Let's less than like, I think, 100 or so, maybe less than 70. Um, So some of this stuff is is really getting to a point where it's really um, makes little sense to ignore it. Um, You know, we're going to talk about Tesla. Tesla is up 45 percent in a week. 45% 45% in a week. Just kind of let that sink in a little bit here. So when he's talking about, Chris, the, you know, you make great points. Yeah, the banks act a little better today. They don't act well. Oil stocks act a little better. They don't act well on a relative basis. So there's a lot of things that speak to what I think is going on in the economy and likely to go on in the back half of the year. And just one quick point, you know, just like in early June, that it was that May jobs number that got the rally going. And you could say that it was the June jobs number that got this going. Well, let me tell you this, you know, if you look at the weekly job claims and continuing claims, they're not particularly good. And over that period of time, since the May report, we've on a weekly basis added more than they've net added back to the jobs that were lost due to the uh, the shutdown. So to me, I think the back half of the year is not shaping up particularly uh, well, especially when you consider the fact that we're going to have rolling shutdowns. I don't mean lockdowns on a state level or a federal demanded level or anything like that. I mean, the, uh, the private sector is going to continue to lead here on those lockdowns. And we're going to continue to see spotty, spotty recovery. In I, my get, opinion. I get that. And I was on that train for a long time, you know, ever since the market rally took off. But I mean, Guy, as a trader, if you put your trader cap on, trade what you see. So what do you see in this market? Yeah. Because right now we're seeing the market go higher and we're seeing a, a wave of liquidity from the Fed that is unprecedented. So don't you just trade this higher? I mean, this is the market we have and we get added every day because we've got a panel that's pretty cautious in general about this about this rally and the hiccups in reopenings. Yeah, no, well, I think I don't think Tim has been cautious. I think Tim has been spot on. I know Chris Verone, when he's here, has been very optimistic. I mean, I've definitely been cautious. But, you know, we've also tried to point out some opportunities along the way. There's nothing really that's going to happen short of some miracle that's going to not make me cautious. I mean, just by virtue of what's going on in the world, you have to look at it and be somewhat pragmatic and say there are serious headwinds. You also have to acknowledge, to your point, what's going on. It's, and quickly... It's interesting Tim mentioned the word draconian because although I can't see him all that well, Dan has a very draconian (laughs) backdrop, and my Morse code is a bit off, but I think he's been blinking, help me, for the last few minutes. It's very stark, his background. No decorations on the walls except for one painting. It's unidentifiable as to the location, Dan. 
Do you want to do you want to blame? Yeah, Mel. Let help? me just say this because I get added a lot, and I don't really give a you know what about it. Okay, yeah, here's know. the deal: <laughs> if you just want to ride, I mean, I mean, but but the point is, it's like we're seeing things right now that we've seen in other very speculative manias. We know how they end. Trees don't just grow to the sky. So when you're seeing this sort of like euphoria and and universal agreement that that Amazon's going to go. Back, like it's going to go from three thousand to four thousand. It just doesn't always go that way, and I get it. These are great companies doing great things, but、um, I don't think you can say that about all of these names that are up a hundred, two hundred, three hundred percent from the March lows. All right, I want to get to some of the stocks that made some pretty outsized move,、uh, moves today compared to the broader markets. Two stocks here at the top of the tape, and we have a pair of big olds. Buzz kills. All right, we kick it off with Tesla here, topping the tape after it got a new street high price target of fifteen hundred dollars from JMP Securities. Analysts say the company could get to one hundred billion dollars in yearly revenues by twenty twenty five. Shares are now up more than two hundred and fifteen percent this year. Chris, this is one that you've been bullish on. So, what do you see? Well, I think Dan called it right. Pretty remarkable last five days. Stock up forty five percent. So, let's talk about some levels. The prior high before this breakout. Was 970, and the low back in March was 370. The difference between those two numbers is 600 points. Add 600 to that 970, it gets you to a target of about 1560, 1570. I think that's a fair target for this move. But I think this is really the embodiment of this growth trade that remains very much intact. And I think one of the most remarkable stats of the 36 analysts that cover this, there's still only nine buys. So the sell side still has not embraced this move. There have been five downgrades this week. So I think the pain trade in this one's probably still higher. Yeah,、um, guy. Just quickly, I don't know if you saw Elon Musk taunting the shorts as he is apt to do with the sale of short shorts. And these are literal. I checked out on the Tesla website. You can actually buy them. It's not just a joke. These red satin short shorts that come—they're sold out though. In in I think medium and large, only extra large and small are available, guys. So、Which、I don't know if that impacts. <laughs> <laughs> That's, mean, that's、right? unfortunate. I'm, you know, it's it, the red is you know it's absolutely my color. You know, quickly I'll say about it's interesting, and this is something we've said now for a while. You go back to the Joe Kernan interview with the President Trump in Davos when the stock Tesla was, I want to say either side of 300 might have been a tad higher. But if you go back and listen to exactly what President Trump said, said you know we did right by Tesla. I'm paraphrasing, and, and they're going to do right by us or something to that. Effect stocks never look back, and then you go back into May, early May, when the stock was 700. When then Elon Musk tweeted, "The stock is too expensive." I'm paraphrasing again. That lasted for about a day, and now here we are at a double. So he can do it every once on Twitter because, in my opinion, he seems to have air cover, and that's something we've said for a while. So, and I've said this for a while. I don't necessarily get it, but I do see what's going on, and you absolutely stay with the name. All right, another stock here、uh, that caught our eye today, Square. Marking its own record high after analysts at SunTrust nearly doubled the price target on the stock to 150 from 83. Tim, the market cap, by the way, bigger than Deers. It's bigger than all but four components on the KBW Bank Index. Yeah, and, and KBW, there was another upgrade, and I think you have a case here 
um, where at $50 billion, a lot of these analysts are just catching up. But let, let's be clear. Square's taken a lot of market share. Obviously, it is a have in the world of have and have nots in the, the COVID-19 environment. Uh, very active. Their cash app, which has been about 25% gross profits overall uh, and has been growing DAUs about 60% since 2019, is, is part of the story. And, and it's part of the higher margin story for a company that really right now is not even focused on profitability. So if you're looking at valuation, you, you're probably valuing this on an EV to revenue story. Um, but at some point, this has just been a total catch up. I, look, I am still long the name. Uh, I have uh, taken a lot of chips off the table and own it in a few accounts. But I, I, you know, it's very difficult to rationalize this valuation for a company that I think uh, Jack Dorsey has had his finger on the pulse of what's going on with consumer banking. Uh, Square will be there. Cross-selling within the app is a part of this. Stickiness within the app is a part of this. But at some point, the street's just chasing its own tail. What does that chart look like to you, Chris? You know, this is one of those names where it actually was dead money for two and a half years. It was sideways. It only just broke out. Now, I know the move has been super aggressive over the last several weeks, but this was not a stock that was lower left to upper right for the last several years. It was sideways. So I think there's probably more to go here longer term. Is it stretched in the short term? Yes, but by weakness. All right, let's get to the buzzkills here. There are a couple of them. FedEx. A buzzkill, losing some of the momentum it had earlier in the day, though ultimately eking out a gain. So, Guy, um, you know, underperforming. What does this tell you? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this last week when they reported. Remember, this was a $250 stock in September of 2018, so it's effectively been cut in half. Worse a few weeks ago. UBS upgraded the name, uh, raised their price target, I believe, on June 24th to 156. We flagged that a couple weeks ago. And, you know, Tim's been on this, and Bonowin, when he's on, has also been uh, optimistic on this name correctly. But I'll go back and say last week, post-earnings, he had a huge volume day, traded up to the high 160s, which is levels we saw a few weeks or so ago, a few months or so ago, I should say, seemingly failed. Again, I say take profits here. You've seen this pattern before of, you know, lower highs and lower lows, and I think that pattern will continue. In my opinion, if you're looking to buy this, you're buying a breakout above 165 or thereabouts, or you're looking for a pullback back to the mid-130s. I think the latter is more feasible. Yeah, Tim? Well, 155 to me was a level I wanted to see the stock hold. Remember, you're not getting that excited over those numbers last week. They were really about cost cutting and some integration, some excitement about, you know, essentially this revitalization of Ground Express. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I think after massively underperforming almost by 60 percent to that low, um, FedEx was a leading indicator for uh, the market back in January of 2018 when it was at its highs. And I think it put in its time. I, I, I think if we're working through a lot of pain, that also doesn't say that there's a turnaround in the economy overnight, but tells you that this stock is always a harbinger for that. Um, I think you stay in this trade after massive underperformance. This is, you know, watch that 155 level to hold. But I like it. All right, let's get to Zoom video. Similar move in the stock here. The recent market darling up more than 5% at the start of the day. End of the day negative. So, Dan, you've been flagging what uh, had been a parabolic move in this stock. Yeah, I mean, listen, for decent reasons in a way, you know, when this company reported their fiscal Q1 earnings in early May, they reported sales that were up like 170% year over year. That is just astounding, right? And they were up about 75% sequentially. They guided in early May or mid-May or so um, to something like 50% sequential revenue growth. Investors took a pause for like a minute, okay? And then in early June, the stock until this morning was up about 50% or so. So this 
company is pulling forward a lot of demand. Who knows when we get back to work in a normal fashion? Who knows if there's some sort of backlash from doing Zooms one after another after another all day long? It's a great product. It's a great service. Um, it is a one product company right now. So that will be a headwind to this company. It also trades at about 40 times this year's expected sales and 30 times next. With a $73 billion market cap, um, you know, it really is going to take some time and some other offerings to grow into that valuation. I can't tell you to sell it here. It feels like it's going to 300. Look at the way some of these other stocks are moving. But just understand, sometimes when you get a gap opening like this and a reversal, you might see a follow through tomorrow and it might feel kind of ugly some point this week. But you pick your spot where you want to own this for five years out, I guess, and you're going to have to dollar cost average into the thing. I'm sick and tired of doing Zooms back, except for the fact that you don't have to wear proper pants while you're doing Zoom as opposed to being in the office. I mean, that's the one upside. Whoa. No, no, no. Got you. Go ahead. Go. I meant, I meant wearing yoga pants. Yoga pants instead of wearing like slacks or a skirt or something like that. Business attire. No, I just I was just looking for clarification. I'm not quite certain what you know qualifies as proper pants, but you've you've made that abundantly clear, and we should probably just move on at this point. All right, let's move on. Today's broad market rally started overnight in Asia, with the Shanghai Composite soaring nearly 6%. And a front-page article in a Chinese newspaper, the Chinese Securities Times, saying uh, fostering a a healthy bull market was now more important than ever. That headline triggering triggering an explosion of searches on social media for how to open a stock account. This is sort of reminiscent, Tim, back when day trading was a huge frenzy in China. They had to put a stamp tax on trading. Yeah, we saw this back in 2014, and we saw this this massive run that kind of peaked into uh, June of 2016. Then you had a, a pretty wicked pullback, and 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 again, you could go all the way back and say that these levels take you there. Remember, remember what our central bank is doing, uh, and and maybe the the PBOC doesn't have the same type of uh, ability to communicate, but I, I, they certainly the state agencies uh, and the Securities Journal with a front page article about this, talking about the wealth effect of owning stocks and how it's going to be a good time. And the Chinese government certainly has bought stocks before and can buy stocks and does understand and sees what's going on around the world. So this is a, a, a massive breakout in the FXI. We talked about this last week as there was some, some fear around the Hong Kong uh, and the nationalization law out of China. But the reality is emerging markets are just starting to break out. The dollar is, is going, uh, going lower and it's a huge tailwind for EM stocks. But some of these mega cap Chinese tech names, and they're not just tech names for today, they're tech names for tomorrow. And I do think that this market is going to give you even more names. I actually bought uh, Tencent Streaming today, which is uh, traded in the New York Stock Exchange. And it's, you know, they're Spotify, but it's an offshoot of Tencent, who to me is one of the most interesting tech incubators in the world. Uh, and I think this one's going higher. All right, let's get a deeper dive on some of these Chinese stocks that Tim had mentioned. Let's go off the charts with Chris. So what are you seeing? You know, I think Tim has this one right. When you look at how the average investor is going to play China. I think KWEB is the place to look. That's the Chinese tech ETF ticker, KWEB. We're right back to those 2017 highs. So remember, this has really been in a bear market for the better part of the last two years. The question is, as we push up against these old highs near 68, near 70, do we embrace this or do we fade it? And I think to answer that question, we have to go under the surface and look at the big weights driving this index. It's not just big weights here, it's big weights driving all these EM. So when you look at the second largest weight, Alibaba, sideways since 2017, this one's just starting to break out. So it's already taken out those 2017 highs. It blew through 230 
uh, over the last several weeks. I think you got to look to about a 300 target. So if you like the big weights, you probably like the ETF as well. Baba, the second largest weight. The first largest weight is Tencent. It's already broken out. And this is another example yeah. where I think pullbacks are going to have to be viable back to support. It's also outperforming the S&P. So KWeb, Chinese tech, outperforming U.S. tech. That's a pretty remarkable feat given how good U.S. tech uh, has been. And, you know, then I also think you want to start looking for some laggards. If this is going to be a group move, you have to go down the quality scale and look for some things that might be starting to catch up. Baidu is an example uh, of that. It's down 70 percent from the highs in early 18. So you had a pronounced bear market here. Uh, high to low down 70. This one just starting to turn. I think anything back to about 125, very good support. Uh, I'd be inclined to buy that. The bigger question for investors is what's driving this move? And Tim touches on it. I agree. The dollar's topping here. Yeah. DXY is putting in a major top. You had a very, very tepid rally over the last couple of weeks when it probably should have been stronger. That was a tell. We failed at 98. I think they're going to push DXY down through 95. That seems to be a tailwind for this EM trade, for this natural resource trade, for this China tech trade. I think you stick with it. So it sounds like there are a lot of forces here at work, not yeah. to mention this potential wave of retail money, uh, China, the Chinese government potentially tapping the shoulders of banks, trading floors around China saying, hey, you know what, it's time to foster a healthy bull market here post-pandemic because it's more important than ever to do, Guy. Yeah. And you wonder where that's coming from. And, and again, not that we're a political show at all, but if you listen to both of President Trump's speeches over the weekend, you know, he went out of his way again to mention China and how they're going to pay, I'm paraphrasing again, but how they're going to pay for their uh, involvement in the coronavirus. I mean, this rhetoric continues to get ratcheted up. And I think, in my opinion, what you're seeing out of China is they're trying to be ahead of the curve in terms of getting their market higher. So now... I think with our market moving higher, I think President Trump probably feels like he has some equity to play with in terms of ratcheting up the rhetoric. And again, at a certain point, I think it's, it matters for the market. Clearly, nobody seems to care right now. But if you think this is going to go away, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Dan? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that Tim mentioned that move in the Shanghai Composite back in 2015. And I think if you remember, it caused a great deal of global volatility okay. across all different sort of risk assets, not just stocks, obviously currencies, fixed income. You know, the Shanghai went in, in to, from 3,000 to like 5,200 and then back below 3,000, all within 2015. It's been tremendously volatile. Back in 2018, it went from 3,500 to 2,500 on the trade war. Um, so to me, it's, it's really interesting. When you think of the Shanghai comp, the market cap is basically $5 trillion, equivalent to Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon. And it seems that our Fed has a much greater, uh, greater control over our stock market when they want to than, let's say, the, 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 the Bank of China. So to me, it seems like a fake market. Um, like a lot of things that come out of China, but I cannot argue with Chris's charts there that Baba is breaking out and it looks like the real deal. So you don't like the overall composite, but you like Baba, bottom line. Well, because it's yeah. listed here. It's got, sure. uh, I guess, more stringent uh, y y you know, uh, data that we have here listed on our exchanges, that sort of thing. But, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't buy the Chinese market. I might buy some names like right. that. Quick question to you, Chris. You mentioned Chinese tech versus U.S. tech. Would you rather? Which one? <laughs> I think the answer is still U.S. tech. It's still global leadership. I want to respect that. But, you know, maybe just to touch on something Dan talked about as well, you know, it's not just China that's working. A lot of the related markets, look at Taiwan, look at Kospi, uh, the 
Aussie market firming here as well. So the related stories are telling a very similar tale here. All right, let's switch gears here. We are continuing to follow a developing story across the nation with more coronavirus hotspots popping up over the holiday weekend. Meg Terrell joins us now with the very latest. Hey, Meg. Hey, Mel. Well, these record numbers continued over the weekend. Just since July began, we've added more than 250,000 cases in the United States. Uh, yesterday, uh, the daily new cases uh, rose to 43,000, the peak there at 53,000. We've had four days of more than 50,000 cases. The test positive rate um, has also increased. Um, Florida reporting record numbers over the weekend, more than 10,000 new cases yesterday, more than 11,000 on Saturday. And though they did close some beaches, some here over the weekend did remain open. Meanwhile, hospitalizations are uh, continuing to be on a disturbing trajectory in, t in states like Texas, more than 8,100. Arizona, more than 3,100 people currently hospitalized. And these aren't the only states that are having issues. You know, Georgia is also one of concern. Uh, and multiple states from Alabama to Montana, New Mexico, Ohio, Oregon, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Wisconsin, all at a peak on their seven-day average, according to Evercore ISI. But in terms of the areas seeing the fastest growth, still mainly Florida. Jacksonville seeing the fastest growth in the country right now with a case doubling time at a pace of eight days, followed by Charleston, South Carolina, San Antonio, Texas, Orlando, and Tampa Mel. The good news is we are seeing progress on treatments. Regeneron said this morning that its antibody cocktail drug, which could be both preventative and a treatment, is now in late stage studies, and we should see data from that later this summer. So Mel, their thought is that could potentially be available before vaccines if it works. And so we'll be really eager to see that data when it comes. All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with the very latest on uh, the hotspots and the treatments. Guy Adami, in terms of uh, who you might trade, what you might trade off of this. I mean, obviously, Regeneron is in there. Uh, Lil Lily is also in there with yeah. another class, with another kind of drug, monoclonal antibody specifically. Without question. I mean, that's one thing we have been steadfast on is our bullishness in big cap pharma and biotech. I mean, IBB made an all-time high today, I believe. Eli Lilly, I believe, made an all-time high today as well. We've talked about Amgen for a while. Not that you're trading Amgen on the back of this, but that stock made an all-time high last week, broke out through prior resistance on the upside. So there are a lot of names. Sareptis had a huge move. And we've talked about all of these, and we really haven't wavered. So I think you stay with the IBB. Now, I understand the hopium here. I get it as well. I'm a human being, and I, I want to be optimistic. But, again, the vaccine game, uh, it it's, does not happen as quickly as a lot of people uh, want us to believe it does. So, you know, I'm still somewhat, I'm trying to be pragmatic. I'm still trying to be even-keeled. I understand the optimism around it. Uh, I just don't see it happening as quickly as a lot of the people out there want to make you think it's going to happen. Chris, what's your favorite chart in biotech? So if you look at the whole group, Sarepta, I think I just talked about that one, is a fantastic long-term chart. ALNY is another very good one. And then among the pharma uh, charts, Lily's fantastic. Lily's breaking out of like a 20-year base. That's what you want to own there. All right, coming up, remember this incredible video of a crowded casino floor we brought to you a few weeks ago. Well, there are new problems surfacing in Sin City as casino reopenings are at risk. Much more on that ahead. Plus, a holiday weekend, the reopening of America, Hamilton's movie release on Disney, yet Netflix still chugs higher. Can anything derail this Netflix rally? We'll debate that trade straight ahead. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to Fast Money. As coronavirus cases spike in the U.S., the threat of another shutdown is already beginning to have an impact on some key industries. We've got Contessa Brewer standing by with the latest on the casinos. We kick things off with Phil LeBeau and the airlines. Phil. Melissa, the airline stocks were mixed today before finishing the day higher. And the reason is that investors are trying to determine, do you look at the glasses half full or half empty? The half full perspective is, hey, this was a relatively strong Fourth of July weekend. Passengers, yeah, the level was down 72% compared to last year, but it was the best for, best weekend for the airlines in terms of total number of passengers since mid-March. They were getting above 700,000 three of the four days. And this comes at a time when you take a look at shares of American. Look, they're adding about 1,600 flights a day in July as they ramp up what they believe should be a busy summer or relatively busy compared to where they were back in April. Delta adding 1,000 flights a day in the month of July, another 1,000 a day in the month of August. And then they're going to hold off because things slow down in September and October. And then you have United, which is also in the process of uh, adding flights this summer But they said last week they're starting to see demand flattening out. And that's the glass half empty part of this, Melissa. Increasingly, when I talk with people in the airline industry, almost everybody says the same thing. Cancellations are up as COVID-19 cases spread. And people say, well, look, I'm not going to go to a particular destination if they're going to shut down or there's going to be a surge in cases. And bookings are starting to slow down, dramatically slow down. So a number of people around the country, Melissa, may be saying, you know what? I'm not going to book a trip for August or September or whenever until I have some certainty about what's happening with COVID-19. Yeah, and you don't want to be traveling to a state and then get stuck there because you're quarantined for 14 days before you can go on your vacation. Um, Phil, what are the policies right now, though, for airlines? If you say booked a flight on United or American Airlines in August, how far, you know, do, do you have to cancel it? Well, that's why we're seeing a rise in cancellations. The policy basically is if you book a flight and you decide, look, this is not going to work out, you've got until the end of next year to take that flight. So for a number of people, Mm -hmm. they may have booked a flight in May or in June, and now they're coming up on it and they're saying, this is not the time to be going to Dallas or they're not the time to be going to Phoenix. So they'll just they'll cancel it and then they'll use it at some point in the future. Yeah. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. Um, what happens, Tim? I mean, you, you uh, are, have been an investor in the airlines. What happens when the airlines yep. have to renege or pull back their plans to expand capacity? I would think that that would be yeah, a well, major disappointment. A, and that was a rallying cry for investors about a month ago. Uh, if you look at capacity week over week, uh, it's actually down by about five percentage points from where it was last week. So not year over year. Year over year, um, I think we know the numbers. They're down about 57 percent on domestic, uh, about 87 percent on transatlantic. So the, the real question, I think, for investing in airlines is, is not um, this. There, there will be an up cycle. There will be a moment when we have the visibility to the other side. There will be a time to, um, I think, as we've seen in other times with airlines, the real question is, is the CARES Act going to shackle uh, these companies with, with uh, you know, effectively heavy uh, government dilution. And, and if there's a change in the White House, what, what will a Republican, excuse me, what will a Democratic uh, administration do to, to airlines? Will they have some risk of nationalization? This is, 
this is what's hanging over airlines right now. I don't think it's the, you know, your, 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 your regular kind of uh, out of a crisis, can they rally? They definitely can rally. The question is, is the equity worth owning if the government is alongside of you? And I think a lot of people are fearful of that. Right. And what does it really mean to rise out of the crisis? At what point in time will that be <laughs> in, in the right in the life cycle of an airline? Um, let's yeah. move on here. The resurgence of coronavirus cases also putting pressure on the casino industry. Let's get to Contessa Brewer with the very latest on that. Contessa. Hi, Melissa. Nevada's governor is threatening swift, decisive action this week to crack down on businesses breaking the health and safety rules. State and local enforcement teams in Nevada are actively gauging compliance, and they're not finding it. Last Wednesday, for instance, fewer than half the businesses observed were following the mask mandate, and gaming regulators have opened more than 100 cases for noncompliance. Wild rumors have been published about casinos voluntarily closing. Las Vegas Sands, MGM, Caesars gave me a resounding, not true, but they're cracking down themselves. MGM and Caesars both emailed employees warning of disciplinary action for failing to follow social distancing and mask rules. Caesars CEO even warned workers could be fired. Caesars is also instituting mandatory COVID testing for all Las Vegas employees. Now, beyond Nevada, New Jersey's casinos just opened last week at 25 percent occupancy and no indoor dining allowed. So, you know, feeding hotel guests is such a complicated task. MGM's Borgata just postponed reopening. A couple Louisiana casinos have announced hundreds of layoffs. In Macau, another extension of quarantine rules and gaming revenues down 97 percent. Las Vegas Sands has reopened in Singapore, but at 25 percent capacity. And so for now, only to gold status reward members and higher, Melissa. Contessa, you mentioned the internal emails to employees for failing to follow the rules. What happens to guests? Do they get kicked out? Is there a blacklist of people yep. who, who don't? So there, there are. There is. I don't know about a blacklist, but they have said you need to tell us if a guest is not following the rules. And they, they have said they plan to escort visitors off the property if they fail to comply with the mass policies. And remember, for Caesars and MGM, that goes for every property mm -hmm. nationwide, not just in Nevada, where the governor has mandated it. All right. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. Guy Dami, you flagged uh, these casinos. They underperformed in today's market. Yeah, and the windicator, as we put I mean, people are going to start using it. Mark my words. Yeah. It's catching Genius, on. Genius, right? It's That's our on. crack staff, by the way, in EC. Now, so it's, it's, it is interesting. I mean, you think about when, for example, it bottomed out, I think, at $35 on March 18th or thereabouts, closed higher on that day, and traded up to 109 a few weeks ago, and then gave up the ghost. If you're looking to trade these stocks, look, win against $72 on the long side makes a lot of sense for trade. Not that the business is improving anything but, but you already saw the sell-off from that 109 level. So 72 is a 50% retracement of the, of the range we just talked about. I think you can buy this stock for a trade right here, Mel. All right, coming up, Netflix proving to be a big quarantine winner. Should, you, should all you cool cats and kittens scoop it up or just chill on that trade? We'll debate it next. Plus, Intel ding with the downgrade. What warning signs is one Wall Street firm see? Much more on that call straight ahead. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. 
I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix hitting an all-time high today. Canaccord saying the streaming giant will remain the content king as consumers continue to stay at home. And specifically, they cited a survey of their own consumers that they did. 7% saying that they will continue to view streaming more steadily after the pandemic. So, Dan Nathan, where do you go with Netflix? You know, it's really hard. If you have kids and you've been sitting at home, you realize that they've literally watched everything there is on the Internet. OK, so I haven't seen my kids pull up Netflix in like three months right now. And they're moved on. They went to Hulu and now they're at Disney Plus and the list goes on and on and on. And this goes to one of the bear cases for the Netflix story is just how much money are they going to spend each year to acquire or create new content? I think they're expected to spend $17 billion. When you get a uh, curveball like what Disney just did putting on uh, Hamilton, you know, I've already watched it twice over the weekend. It's sticky stuff, right? And so you just realize that there's going to be an arms race. We know the negative free cash flow associated um, for their content spend. I just think that that period of time that we've been talking about for years when all that competition is going to come, well, it's here now, even with more time to watch the content. And then when you think about the fact that creating content is going to be on a pause for a very long time, you need a deep catalog. Some of these new networks like Peacock and some of the things that Disney have have deep catalogs. So I would expect some of the growth that these guys had early in the pandemic to kind of level off a little bit. I get the, I get the whole you know content blackout period and the need for an in-depth catalog. But longer term, I mean, it's only a problem spending money on on content if you can't raise the money. And Netflix doesn't seem to have that problem, at least right now, especially with the stock going the way it is, Tim. So it, the question is, do they have pricing power? Can they raise prices? Remember, they, they raised prices in early 2019. Um, I, I think that pricing power is not there in this environment. I think the competitive hmm. landscape. But I give Reed Hastings a ton of credit, um, not only for acknowledging competition, but, but, but then also offering up that the, the, the death of linear TV means that there's plenty out there for everybody, and they have a massive head start. So uh, I don't like the cash burn story. I have been short this name. I am not short anymore. Uh, and some of that is just watching some key levels on the breakout, because this is one of those stocks that at times um, it doesn't respond to fundamentals. So as much as you, know, you can bang your head against the wall. I don't like the valuation. I don't like the cash burn. I don't like the competitive landscape. Um, based upon the market that we're in, um, this is one that I don't feel comfortable being short anymore, and I'm not. All right, coming up, will the work from home boom help save the failing PC business? Goldman says it's a bust. Slapped a downgrade on Intel today. We'll have the details straight ahead. Plus, options traders betting on golden gains in this one stock. We'll bring you all that action in this name when Fast Money returns. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for the call of the day. Goldman Sachs downgrading Intel to a sell from a neutral, saying shares of the chipmaker could fall 9% as the coronavirus fallout hits the PC and server CPU markets. The stock managed to escape today in the green, but this is not what Intel investors will want to hear so soon after Apple did the company as a supplier. Um, Dan, what I thought was interesting was that recently the analysts actually upgraded the stock, thinking that it would benefit from work-from-home trends, uh, but that there was a pull forward in PC demand. And so back half of the year, they think, is going to be weak there. Yeah, listen, kudos to the analyst who wants to trade the stock and put a sell on it. You don't see too many sells here. He's not even calling for a 10% downside here. But I think the key themes there are what you just said, Mel, the pull in from the pandemic and the and the really the lack of visibility on enterprise spending. So I think this call could be broadened out a little bit, especially as we've seen some players in data center related stuff um, in the enterprise do very, very well. But the other um, point that I think is really important to Talking about um, federal and state budgets going to be really depressed. So, um, you know, Intel is a tough one as it regards to those end markets. But the valuation about 13 times on a relative basis is very, very cheap. So this is a trade. uh, This is a call for traders, really. I mean, I I don't see this as an investment theme. And I think at 59 bucks, it probably lines up pretty well against some of its peers. Do you see that 9 percent downside, Chris, in the charts? You know, I think it's a hat tip to the stock for actually holding up relatively well on a downgrade. It held the 200 today. I thought that was important. But if you want to own this or if you want to get aggressive with it, you really got to break it up through 64, 65. We'll see if that happens. The problem I have with the name is there's so many better charts in this sector. The semis are a strong group across the board. You really got to have a lot of faith in Intel executing if you're going to own a laggard. All right. Coming up, food, glorious food. Deals in the delivery space making it easier for you to get just that. Grab your snacks. We'll break down the trades. Plus, traders are seeing something shiny in the options market. We'll break down all the action on that trade. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Uber sealing the deal and acquiring food delivery service Postmates. Let's get to Deirdre Bosa for the details. Deirdre. Hey, Melissa. Well, Uber is making up for lost time in the food delivery space. The key question is, Will Postmates be that silver bullet and make up for the collapse in its core ride sharing? Now, unlike a Grubhub purchase, which would have combined the number two and number three players and given DoorDash a run for its dominance, Uber now has the distant number four player in Postmates. So, yes, it is some much needed consolidation and it gives Uber an edge in a couple of key markets, but it still leaves two very well capitalized competitors on the field. And it isn't clear how any of them get to profitability in this environment. DoorDash, keep in mind, just raised fresh funding while Grubhub was sold to a European rival. Now, the Uber Postmates all-stock deal worth $2.65 billion. That also combines two money-losing players. Uber's Eats business lost more than $300 million in adjusted EBITDA in the first quarter, while sources tell me that Postmates was running out of cash As part of the deal, Uber will provide bridge financing to the startup during the process of obtaining regulatory approvals. Ultimately, though, guys, CEO Darwar Khazar Shahi, he estimates more than $200 million in run rate synergies after that deal closes. Back to you. Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa. Um, Dan Nathan, I will go to you. What do you think of this deal? It's brilliant, Mel. You know, you pay, you pay $2.6 billion for a money-losing company, consolidate your market share, uh, you have 37% combined, and your stock goes up 6%, and it basically pays for a, an all-stock deal. I mean, you can't really argue about it, except there is for some now. dilution there. Um, 
You know, I mean, listen, at, at the end of the day, um, these guys are going to have to do a lot of things to justify their valuation. I would have thought they would have cut bait on Uber Eats. They're doubling down. Um, Dara is uh, a very good CEO. I'm sure they'll figure something out. So the divide now between Uber and Lyft seems to be widening in terms of the differences in their business with Uber doubling down on delivery. Guy. Yet since the beginning of March or that March low for both, the stocks have actually almost traded in lockstep. And I want to say Lyft is maybe outperforming a little bit. But to your point, the chasm between the two continues to grow. I happen to think in Lyft's favor. I mean, Lyft traded up to $41 earlier in June and had that big sell-off with, with, with Uber. I think Lyft is a place to be. I think their pathway to profitability is much clearer. And I just think it's a better company. I also drove for Lyft for a day, so I'm somewhat biased. But with that said, I still think I'd rather own Lyft than Uber in the game of would you rather, Mel. I, I liked it when you picked up that lady, your first passenger. She said, how long have you been a Lyft driver? And you said, oh, about 20 minutes. She, <laughs> she I had to lock the door because she confidence. wanted to get out so quickly. Yeah, yeah, I know. You locked the door. I remember that. Uh, Chris, what do you think of the two charts, Lyft or Uber? Which one? You know, I think the problem with Uber is this is just another example of a chart that's been making lower highs for a year. So it has to show us something before we want to embrace it. Lyft as well. Listen, I think if you want to trade Uber, that 28.39 level was the June 29th low. It better hold that. That's got to be your line in the sand here. All right. Coming up, looking to mine a winner. We'll hit the options action pits to break down a golden opportunity. Traders are seeing much more fast money in two. Hello and good evening to all you Mad Money fans. I'm Wilfred Frost. Jim is off this week, but you're in luck. We've got a special edition of Fast Money coming your way right now. Your traders tonight, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour and Dan Nathan on tap today. Warren Buffett just making a big deal in the energy space, but he's still got a pile of cash, enormous pile to put to use. We will ask the traders, what should he do with that cash next? Plus, the stock that suddenly soared to the top of the charts among retail investors today will tell you what it is and find out how to trade it from here. And we want to know all of your burning questions as well. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money, and we'll get you some answers. But let's start with another strong start to the week for the markets. In fact, record-breaking close for the Nasdaq tech uh, leading the way, as it has done so often. Uh, Guy Adami, uh, your take on today's rally. Uh, if we snapshot today, Guy, uh, halfway point of the year, the Dow is down 8% or so. The Nasdaq 100 up 21%, almost a 30% differential. Will that be repeated in the second half of the year? I, well, first of all, it's great, great to be with you. You know I'm a huge fan of yours. I've mentioned that a number of times. So here, here. Thanks it's a for pleasure to out be with, with all this of evening. you. Yeah, thanks for having <laughs> me, guys. And I, I, I'm hard-pressed to believe that you can come anywhere close to having that same kind of outperformance in the second half. But I have to say... I didn't think that any way would happen in the first half of the year. So, so who am I to sort of speculate on that? What I will say in terms of the S&P 500, with its move basically within a whisper of its all-time high, you know, if you assume about $130 worth of earnings for the S&P 500, which I think is a bit of a pipe dream, at $3,200, you are talking about a market that's trading close to 25 times earnings. That's rich by anybody's standards. The counter to that is it doesn't matter because central banks globally have poured so much liquidity into the system. I happen to do think valuations matter, and I think we're getting to levels where the market might think that as well. And we're getting close to earnings as well, so we kind of get a rethink of valuations. Uh, we'll come to earnings in a moment. Dan, 
Good to see you outside of the uh, DMZ for once. And uh, I know from those <laughs> conversations that you're not particularly bullish, but are you uh, more bearish on the cyclical names or those tech-heavy fang names? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've spent a lot of time talking about some of the cyclicals that don't act particularly well or some of the um, areas like bank stocks in particular that act downright horrible or oil stocks um, that just don't really confirm what we're seeing in mega cap tech. You know, when you think about mega cap tech, you're absolutely seeing panic buying right now. It's really kind of unnatural in a way. And it reminds me of the late 1999, early 2000 period for many of the same names. But, you know, Microsoft is up, you know, 33 percent on the year. It's up double that from its March lows. And, you know, when you think about some of the headwinds to enterprise spending and you think about how how they're getting their lunch eaten with um, teams, whether it's Slack that's doing it or Zoom uh, versus Skype, you say to yourself, what the heck is going on here? Because this company, you know, was obviously decently positioned prior to the pandemic, but I'm not sure they're 2x um, you know, position where we're going to discount any snags that they have in earnings for the next year or so. So to me, I, I just don't see some of this stuff that's going on here. I actually have seen it before. I know it doesn't end particularly well. If you're a retail investor and you're panicking to buy stocks right here on July 6th that have had the runs that they've had, I think it's quite dangerous, to be honest with you. Tim, Dow versus NASDAQ is a clear performance differential so far year to date. So is U.S. versus rest of the world. Unless you focus yeah. on two countries, China, that's uh, had a great day today and put the Shanghai index up 10% almost year to date. And Germany, only down 3 or 4% year to date, more similar to the S&P 500. Do we conclude from that that if you are really, really on top of uh, controlling the virus, that you should perform well? And if so, why has the U.S. still performed so well? Yeah, look, well, first of all, welcome, Wealth. Great having you. And, and I think this rest of the world trade is something that actually we've seen, uh, you know, start to move two to three weeks ago. If you look at the, uh, the DAX and if you want to invest in it over here and you, you invest in the EWG and remember, uh, that's a local currency based ETF. So effectively, uh, you're, you're going to outperform if the euro is outperforming the dollar during that time. And the DAX has outperformed uh, the markets here by about 12, 13 percent uh, in the last six weeks. Um, China last night uh, had an extraordinary uh, dynamic of where uh, the Securities Journal and the state newspapers were essentially saying, hey, get involved in the stock market, wealth effect coming, uh, bull market possibly coming, and, and certainly stimulating the fact um, that there will be exciting support for their markets, whether they should be doing that or not. But, you know, that's that's their version of, of the Fed getting out there saying we'll do whatever it takes. So um, the underperformance of China and emerging markets uh, to this point, but the last few days and even last week, the outperformance of the FXI, despite what's going on in Hong Kong, is a trend that I think investors should continue to look at. And, you know, Guy talked about earnings and valuation. Uh, look, I, I'm not sure that we're, we're really handicapping uh, S&P earnings uh, until 2022. And that's, that's, that's the opportunity where I think uh, people are looking for laggards and underperformers uh, while they've just bid up U.S. stocks. So uh, exciting day for global investors. Um, but it's been a brutal you know, six months, even with this outperformance over the last few weeks. And uh, the one international market, of course, that hasn't played catch up yet is uh, the UK. But, but we could have expected that, I guess. Um, Guy, uh, to Tim's point just there uh, about whether the market is reacting to earnings or whether it is reacting to, to momentum or liquidity. Do you think earnings season uh, coming up, banks kicking off uh, a week from tomorrow, 
will be a moment where the momentum could be taken out of the market and people focus back on the fundamentals again? I think for a couple of days at least it will, because I don't think earnings are going to be particularly um, robust, in my opinion. The banks have absolutely underperformed. I mean, we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But you talk about a name like J.P. Morgan, which made an all-time high of 141, I think, in February, flirted with $80 and now sort of meandering here in the mid-90s. I mean, these stocks are underperforming. I think they're underperforming for a reason. And to answer your question, I do think the market will take a pause post-earnings. Yes, you're going to see some one-offs, great earnings. We've seen it, and those stocks have been rewarded. But when you look across the spectrum, I'm hard-pressed to believe companies will say anything uh, all that, all that optimistic, my opinion. You know, it's interesting. We saw some earnings over the last couple of weeks, and we saw a great reaction, obviously, out of FedEx. FedEx has been going down for two years, um, and its earnings estimates had just been ratcheted lower and lower, and the stock bounced maybe 12, 13 percent after that report. But we also saw Nike get flushed, and we saw, you know, we saw some other action here. So, you know, it's been a kind of one-way trade or a 45-degree angle for the last couple of months. But as we head into the back half of the year, I think earnings will matter more when you think that liquidity was one of the main things that got the stock market here. It's kind of distorting valuation a little bit. But one of the things that Guy, when he was brought up in this market after the, the really the great crash, maybe close to a century ago, um, you know, you had to learn how um, to figure out um, you know, price discovery and valuation scrutiny. You know, these were two very important things, and they seem to be out the window again. But once we kind of get over this hurdle of the stimulus or the financial assistance that turned into stimulus, I don't think there's going to be a whole heck of a lot more of that in the second half of this year. And that's when investors might start to scrutinize valuation a little bit, especially to what Tim just said. We're not going to get back, I don't think, to peak earnings, to 2019 earnings for a couple of years. And I think you should probably start to put a discount on multiples if that's the case, especially if visibility is going to be that poor for that long. Let's bring in uh, another market voice uh, joining us uh, now uh, by phone. Lindsay Bell, chief investment strategist uh, at Ally Invest uh, and a CNBC contributor. Lindsay, great to hear from you as always. Uh, I guess uh, starting off with the the general market mood, uh, it feels like it's super positive. Another record close on the Nasdaq. But but have we in fact been range bound for a couple of weeks when you look more at the the S&P 500? And will it take a lot to break us out of that range in either direction? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have been range-bound for the last couple of weeks. Of course, you get a Monday like this where we're, we're um, hitting new highs uh, in the NASDAQ and, and, and some of the big tech names. Uh, sure, that feels exciting. But, but underneath, I think the reality is coronavirus cases are increasing here in the U.S. While the economic data up till this point has been um, surprising to the upside, the question mark remains, how is that going to develop over the next couple months? Are we going to see a plateauing in economic data? Um, There's still a lot of questions out there, even with policy. While policy has been a great support to the system um, for for the the majority of the last several months, this month in particular, several of the fiscal policies are going to run out. And by the way, taxes are due July 15th, so that could put a damper on sentiment, too. So I think there's a lot of question marks out there, even if it feels a day like today feels really good. And as we get into the second half of the year, uh, I do believe, like your guest was saying earlier, that um, fundamentals are, gonna, are going to matter a lot more when that policy jolt starts to fade. Are we more likely, Lindsay, to break meaningfully higher or lower? Um, 
You know, to me, I think that as we go through third quarter earnings season, you, you know the summer is a slower, weaker period during the year. Um, I think that we're going to get some digestion and some co- consolidation because I think it's going to be a huge mixed bag. I don't think any management teams are going to say anything earth-shattering, but I think the game-changer is going to be the election in November, and that's going to determine where we go uh, to the upside or downside from here. Same quick question to each of the traders, one by one. More likely to break meaningfully higher or lower? Guy first. Well, I mean, I have to be steadfast in my beliefs. I think the break is going to be meaningfully lower. Tim? How are we defining meaningfully, Wilf? Um, look, I, I think the liquidity of the Fed, which, by the way, the last three weeks we've taken Fed liquidity out of the market and the market's still gone higher. That's very good news for that correlation trade. Um, I, I do think that there's more room to the upside, not meaningful. Um, and I think the markets are at some point offsides. Dan? Yeah, I think you have a one-up, two-down scenario to answer your question. I think that maybe you see the S&P 500 back near 3393 under some of the best-case scenarios. But on the downside, possibly down to 2750. That's how I get to one-up, two-down. Lindsay, I'm I'm generalizing those answers a little bit. Two-to-one, bear-to-bull there. Is that the same kind of uh, answers you get when you speak to your clients? Yeah, I mean, I think think that that's where the institutional... um, mindset is at and i think on the retail mindset which is where, where i'm at on the ally invest side is it's, it's much different there is um more enthusiasm and excitement um within within the market and the potential for it going into the end of the year especially as like you said like people continue to work from home they have time to to dabble in the market and and learn and and there's definitely a strong interest for that Hey, Lindsay, it's Tim. So with some of the sectors that have really underperformed, um, is there some interest in starting to rotate? Uh, Look, we had an ISM services number this morning, which was very bullish. Obviously, the payroll number has been digested, but PMIs around the world. I'm not saying we're off to the races here, but there are uh, sectors that have badly underperformed. And so, you know, I think we're all saying chasing five or six stocks at the top of the NASDAQ leaderboard is concerning. But is there anything you can own? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question. And, you know, I've been eyeing financials for the last couple months now because I agree with you. That's one sector that has been beaten down significantly. And e- the economy is starting to improve. And even if we do hit a little bit um, of, a, of a plateauing here, I do think that the worst is behind us. And um, these stocks have been beaten down to 2009 levels. So I think there's opportunity within, within that sector, even with interest rates um, remaining low for a long time. That, that said, Lindsay, I wonder, you, you mentioned the election briefly in, in uh, an earlier answer. Do you think the financials will, uh, will be at risk if, if there's a Democratic sweep at the election? There was a note out earlier today from J.P. Morgan that actually suggested the broader markets were not uh, too much at risk uh, from the election, but perhaps financials would be a sector that could be. I mean, it'll definitely be um, a focus if, if there's a, a Democratic Democratic president and Democratic sweep for for sure. Um, But again, I do think this is a sector that's been beaten down so significantly um, that once we get past the election, there is, um, you know, there's the ability to, um, for the uncertainty to be lifted because you know where we're going for the next four years. Um, And while the financial, the red tape that has been cut by the Trump administration on the financial sector regulations that have been um, removed, um, that will likely you know, potentially come back on. I, I think that these stocks are just so beaten up that it's something that's worth at least having some exposure in your portfolio. Dan, is the election a risk for the markets? 
Um, not really. I know, mean, I, I think that. Oh, so. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I actually don't. I mean, I, I think that uh, under most circumstances, I think a lot of investors um, have already priced in probably higher corporate tax rates. So I don't see that as a big thing. And, and listen, I think if you look back, Wilf, to the last financial crisis, um, you know, obviously deregulation in the lead up to that, uh, the 07, 08 period um, was a little aggressive. The banks were the source of that crisis. They are not the source of that crisis right now. But let me tell you something. I think we're probably also pretty decently happy with those regulations being in place, we might have really just added fuel to the fire, whatever the next fire was going to be. So at the end of the day, I think the regulation worked out okay. The dereg right now is fine, but it's also one of the things that's putting, I think, um, some shackles on these bank stocks right here. They would like to see interest rates rise. I think under a new administration, you may start to see that with less um, geopolitical volatility for our country. Would also mention the bank seeing a lot of stock differentiation in the way that we weren't in Q1. Morgan Stanley only down 5% year to date. Wells Fargo down 50% year to date. They begin their uh, earnings uh, reporting next Tuesday. Lindsay Bell, thanks so much for joining us. Now, as the market rally Thank rolls you. on, the uh, Chartmaster is taking a look at the concentration of stocks that are leading the charge. Uh, Cornerstone Macros, Carter Worth is here to break it down for us. Carter, over to you. Sure. Thanks, Wolf. I mean, this is a classic instance of a bifurcated market, and almost every major top that's occurred has had that circumstance. In 2000, financials and other things were turning down before uh, the market peaked in March. We know in 07, same thing, consumer discretionary names and banks had turned down before it peaked in October of 07. And we have the same circumstance just before we came apart in February. But let's look at a few tables and charts. The first I have here is just to the issue of concentration of capital. The top three stocks are the same as essentially the bottom 300. You see it there. They're actually more. It's 4.6 trillion in value, 16.6% of the S&P versus the bottom 300, 4.2 or 15.2%. So top three more than the bottom 300. Take a look at the second uh, table, the top five. Now the top five are 6.3 trillion versus the bottom 350 at 5.27. So now you're talking about top five at almost 23% versus the bottom 350 at 21. Um, now, take a look at the top 15. And this has just reached the level that it was in the dot-com era. The top 15 stocks at 9.5 trillion are essentially 34% of the market. That's the same as the bottom 420. Top 15 and the bottom 420 stocks. There is no S&P index anymore. It's just a few names. So uh, take a look at the next. Uh, this is a chart that depicts actually the top five. And what's the weighting? 22.6, almost 23%. In February, it was more like 21. And the dot-com peak, it was 19%. So concentration of capital is a very defensive thing. And people want to hide because they're worried about things. It's good technique until it's just too crowded a theater. In any event, final slide, the summary of it all, and this really gets to the heart of the matter, the top five stocks, again, 22.6% of the market cap of the S&P, and yet their earnings, of course, the top five are only 12.5%. These are the darlings, but the top 15 are more than the bottom 420. We are so dependent on just a few names. Well, we, cert we certainly are, Carter. I guess uh, if you're comparing it to the dot-com bubble, would uh, that percentage of earnings, uh, albeit today it is lower than the percentage of market cap, would it have been a lot lower 
uh, earnings relative to market cap back in, uh, back uh, in that? Yes, for sure. A lot lower, I think. I mean, and that's important. And this is a much different era. Interest rates are, are different, of course, and we don't have the valuation issue that we had at the dot com. But again, if you think about the peak in March of 2000, the peak in October of 07, and, and every other peak, uh, for the most part, even frankly in February before the pandemic hit, you have this, well, bifurcation is the word, where a few names are doing more and more and more of the lifting as others continue to struggle. And so it's this, it's this um, hard decision, do I stay and chase those that are so crowded, or does one, frankly, uh, take the risk, which is value investing? I mean, uh, there are value traps, and we're seeing that in energy and banks and industrials and so forth. Carter thanks so much for joining us. Uh, let's trade it. Guy, we go to you. I, I guess you alluded to this argument at the start of the show, which is you could have made the points Carter just made at any point of the last five years, and you, you would have missed out on some tremendous fang performance. No, absolutely very true without question, but his point is well taken, and I know you're a footballer, a fan of football. Let me put it in terms <laughs> that you will understand. I mean, if you recall, in the 90s, uh, Eric Cantona finished his career at Man U. He was the star of the team, and he was able to carry them for a period of time until he couldn't. And I think that's what's going on in the market. You can't have just a few names carrying an entire market. It works until it doesn't, and I think we're closer to Eric Cantona 97 than we are to Eric Cantona it's, at 92, it's if you get my drift. It's not the perfect analogy, Guy, because he then retired just before the most <laughs> successful period in Manchester United history. So I guess it would be like arguing that Amazon then found a new business line to go into that carried them to even greater heights. But I get the point you're trying to make, and I really appreciate the way in which you're trying to make it, uh, including calling it football. I'm not soccer. sure our audience does. No, I think we, I just went into a, <laughs> down, down a rabbit hole. So, so let's go to Tim. Uh, what's your take on this particular point? And if you could use a football analogy, I'd welcome it. Well, I, I think we'd lose another half of our audience. <laughs> and, and speaking of rabbits, by the way, I think I saw three or four rabbits in that, that painting right next to Carter. We should bring that back because there's a lot of hidden gems in there. Um, I, I think you have a case where we, we have had these moments where uh, the, the breadth in the NASDAQ has, has been a harbinger. Uh, we've also had these moments where we've actually seen that kind of breadth, and then we see massive rotation. Uh, and I think we've seen some of that even off the lows of March. So while this has been an extreme, and this reminds me of where we were really two Mondays ago uh, into the middle part of that week before we had a nice pullback. I, I think, tell me how long the Fed's going to be in the market, and I'll tell you how long liquidity is going to drive up uh, five or six stocks even higher. Well, That's the dynamic. That's where liquidity goes. But here's a question on that, Tim, which perhaps we don't discuss enough. Just last year, we were all saying that the tools left in the Fed's uh, toolbox are, are far diminished from what they had a year earlier or 10 years earlier. And then today, this year, we've seemed to forget that argument. I mean, uh, yes, they're, they're all in, but uh, is their ability to, to be all in or does all in mean less than it once did? I just think we, we have the evidence of 2018 uh, when not only the Fed but other central banks were trying to take liquidity out of the market. And then we have 2019 and we have all these test cases. You tell me what global central banks are doing and what liquidity is doing. I'll tell you which direction the market's going to go. Um, so, yes, uh, and I mentioned this earlier, um, the, the Fed's balance sheet has actually fallen the last three weeks. They're only buying five to six billion in treasuries. That's down substantially. Um, but they haven't really reversed and they're not going to reverse. That's a dynamic that I, I think is all equity investors need to know. It's not that simple, um, except for the fact that central banks have been your friend. And until liquidity moves in reverse, um, equity markets are going higher.
Uh, so after today's uh, monster rally on Wall Street, what are the day traders buying and selling? Rahel Solomon joins us now with uh, some of those key trades. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Wolf. I'm sorry. No football references here. So I'll just get that out of the way early. Uh, yeah, <laughs> some of those darlings, Apple, Amazon and Microsoft, all among the top 20 most popular stocks on Robinhood today along with some smaller but still well-known names like Uber and security monitoring company ADT, and that's according to data from Robin Track. Another notable stock getting attention from Robinhood traders, Lemonade, in its first full day of trading after its IPO on Thursday. The stock soared 17 percent, making its total gain over the last two days over 50 percent. And then there is a big basket of companies related to electric and renewable energy-powered vehicles. These range in size and scope, including those with small market caps like Plug Power, Plug Power and Electrica Mechanica, which, Wolf, if you have not seen what those cars look like, I highly recommend it. But the top two stocks on Robinhood were the world's largest automaker by market cap, Tesla, and its Chinese rival, Neo, both of which jumped double digits today, 22% for Neo. 13.4% for Tesla there, also hitting record highs. Well, I'll say Rah- back to you. Rahel, thank you very much uh, for that. Dan, what's your reaction uh, to, to what the day traders uh, were doing today? It's no bueno, dude. I mean, listen, this is not, we've seen this before. I mean, Tesla's up 45%, 45% in a week, okay? The stock rallied 3% in the last hour of the day today because the day traders couldn't stand not owning it for the gap up tomorrow. We've been here before. We know how this ends. And let me just tell you something, you know, we were just talking about, or Tim just mentioned, let me know when the Fed's going to pull uh, pull away the punch bowl. I guess the, 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 the thing that you could say is, like, well, we actually have seen this before. We knew what the the the, the PB or the uh, the Japanese uh, central banks were doing in the late '80s, early '90s. I mean, the Nikkei is down 45 percent from its all-time highs. So at some point, we know what's going to happen here. Interest rates are never going to go higher. The 10-year Treasury is probably going to be zero or negative at some point in the next year. That's the only way to keep this thing going right now. And to Tim's point, they are deadly afraid of Q4 2000. 2018. So, you know, I mean, we saw this last year in 2019. They started cutting interest rates. They started doing QE and Q3 and Q4. They were worried about risk assets going lower. At some point, as my main man Guy Adami likes to say, you reach a point of diminishing marginal returns here. So, you know, I don't know, but I'm just seeing stuff that makes absolutely no sense. And you know what I'm going to say, people. I know this is mad money, but on Fast Money, we say, have at it. Ride the bull, baby. Um, Guy, to the point of diminishing marginal returns, does, does Uber, which appeared on that list today, deserve to be higher off the back of this Postmates deal? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, to me, it's, it's, you know, it's they sort of got the second prize after the Grubhub thing. So I understand. I, but I do see what's going on, because as Dan mentioned, during the five o'clock hour, when your stock moves to the point at which it did today in Uber, this, the deal pays for itself in terms of stock appreciation. So good for them. Uh, I like Lyft. We play this game. Would you rather I like Lyft more than Uber? And just let me leave you on this note, just so you know that I am a big fan of the football. I went to a Charity Shields match at Wembley, <laughs> oh, I believe on, in man. 1997, we doing this when again? Newcastle played Man U. <laughs> and that was, if you recall, because I know you know this, uh, Wilf, that was David Beckham's first appearance, I believe, uh, as a footballer there in we the go. Premier League.
except I'm afraid the Charity Shield isn't part of the Premier League. But still, I, I, I love it. I love the effort. And both it's almost- teams are part <laughs> of the both teams are part of the Premier League. They are, yeah. but the Charity Shield is a slightly different competition. But again, I think we're going to lose viewers, and we're down to, to halving each time we mention this. So we, we're 25% <laughs> of the level that we started on. Quick question back to the markets, Tim Seymour, which I know you'll appreciate the pivot away. Yes. Amazon, again on that list, another record high today. I get that their business mix is absolutely perfect for the world we're in in 2020. Uh, will the same apply when we're out of the COVID era? Are they a special case that they benefit kind of in all scenarios? Look, they seem to be, well, bending it like Beckham, right? So they, they can kind of hit, <laughs> you know, in, in every spot, whether they're profitable or not. Having said that, um, I, I do think that, that Amazon's move, Dan talked about it, uh, you know, we, we, we've had, uh, even relative to Amazon's move, it's not even about valuation, um, but it is about, there, there could be even, we stopped talking about some of the DOJ stuff, we've stopped talking about some of the regulatory pressure. Um, I, I'm not jumping out of a window on Amazon. I, I, I just think that uh, to have the expectation um, that they have the catalysts that they had during COVID-19 to get the valuation higher, I don't see that. By the way, just come to think of it, uh, Guy, you'll definitely be tuning in uh, tomorrow. We, ha- we actually have a football interview on Closing Bell tomorrow, the MLS commissioner on the day the MLS gets back to, 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 to its season again. So uh, there we go. Riveting. That's uh, hot. We've got a That's lot hot. more on this special bonus hour of Fast Money to come. No more football, though, I promise. Uh, coming up, we want to know what stock questions you have. Tweet them to us, CNBC Fast Money. We'll answer them live. But first, uh, why the latest drop in mortgage bailouts might actually signal more pain ahead for the housing market. We'll explain when we come back. Welcome back to Fast Money. The latest mortgage bailout numbers uh, may have declined, but it's not all rosy in the housing market. Dan Olick has those details for us. Hi, Dana. Hi, Wilfred. Yeah, the overall numbers are falling, but more borrowers are now extending their bailouts. As of June 30th, 4.58 million homeowners were in forbearance plans, according to Black Knight. That's 8.6% of all active mortgages, down by about 100,000 in just the past week but with a big red flag. Now, the federal mortgage bailout started at the end of March, initially as a 90-day plan, with the option to extend to six months. And that's the flag. More than two million borrowers got in right in those first two weeks and so would be expiring now. But more borrowers are extending than they are exiting their bailouts. You can see here in the last two weeks, the share of extended bailouts past 90 days jumped from 10 percent of all forbearances to over 17 percent. That according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, which breaks down those numbers. Now, as extra unemployment benefits expire and parts of the economy close again, these extensions are likely to rise. Wilfred. And, and Diana, I think I'm running saying last week pending home sales jumped 40 percent or over 40 percent for the month of May. Explain to us how we can get that disconnect. Well, there's incredible demand for housing right now, and that was pent-up demand from March and April when we basically lost the entire spring season. So there's a lot of people who are in rental apartments, people who are on the fence, people who didn't jump into the market when all of this started, who are now saying, okay, I have to do it fast because I want to get out of the rental or I want to get into a bigger home. Now, that may not extend into the fall. It remains to be seen. It doesn't necessarily have to do with the people who are having trouble paying their mortgages. It is, however, a good sign 
sign, at least, that if those people who are having trouble paying their mortgages in the end just can't hold on to their homes, there is a large buyer population out there ready to buy those homes before they would go into foreclosure. And that's a big difference from what we saw during the last recession and the great subprime mortgage crisis when you couldn't sell those homes. Only investors were around to buy them. Diana, thanks very much for that. Let's uh, trade it. Guy, what was the takeaway from that? Buy the home builders, sell the banks? I think the home builders are okay. You've had, they had a big run they pulled off. But in terms of the banks, you know this. Go back to Wells Fargo's quarter in April when they, t- when they said loan loss provision, $13.79 billion, was up 413% year over year. That's a staggering number. And it's going to be interesting what they say next week, I think, when they report. So they're definitely have and have-nots in the banking sector Wells Fargo, to me, is an absolute have-not in their earnings next week. Well, I would say as well, Guy, that we got the stress test results a week or so ago. Within those results, Wells Fargo felt it necessary to also add a line to say that their loan loss provisions would be higher in Q2 than they were in Q1. And a lot of the analysts saying the fact that they felt it necessary to do that uh, clearly shows uh, the position they're in. But the fact the other banks didn't might mean that uh, there is at least an improving trend Uh, for some of those other banks. I mean, the other key point there, Tim, uh, that Diana mentioned was that this is nothing like the situation we saw in 08, 09. So even if banks are going to make a lot less money this year than they did last year, uh, some of them are priced uh, as if there's still a chance that their future's in question. Yeah, I I think the issue for banks here are not related to residential mortgages, despite the fact that if someone tells you you have a chance to to push off paying your mortgage for three months or six months, you're going to take it. Um, and, and I think we have to be careful that some of those numbers may be skewed to just people being opportunistic. But the commercial uh, mortgage-backed security market, the CMBS, uh, what's going on in commercial mortgages, what's going on in the commercial real estate markets, that to me is where banks, I think, have a lot of exposure. So, yes, you referenced the stress tests, and we talked about uh, a number of those scenarios, and, and largely I think the banks came out of there okay. But they've been trading heavy since those stress tests in the sense that um, – Again, the the nationalization risk that hangs over banks is is part of what I I think holds them back, even though I think their balance sheets are in in great shape relative to even where some of these some of these stress tests could push them. Coming up uh, on this special extra hour, fast money, when a big deal doesn't lead to big gains, why shares of Dominion Energy fell despite a deal with Warren Buffett. And later, can Chinese stocks follow through on their big overnight rally? We'll get you ready for the first trade in Asia. Up 6% they were early this morning. What will happen tomorrow? Back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Dominion Energy sinking 11% today after Berkshire's Warren Buffett purchased the company's natural gas and storage units in a deal worth nearly $10 billion. This is Buffett's first acquisition since the market bottom in March. But is the stock's reaction a sign that it was a deal done too soon uh, or too low a price? Uh, Tim, what's your take? I, the deal feels like it was a deal that was done where you know Buffett sees a lot of regulatory and and at least... Uh, headwinds for pipelines and, and therefore Dominion benefits from that. And I think that's the reason why, you know, he, he made the decision he made. But it wasn't necessarily a, a glowing recommendation on the entire sector or, in fact, the core business. I think it was it was that they may be uh, a, a beneficiary if other new projects are kept sidelined, et cetera. Um, but right now, it's, it's, you know, the midstream energy space has been a tough place to be. This was uh, uh, an interesting Guy, do you read this as Warren Buffett being bullish on energy more broadly? 
No, I don't think so, because I think if he was bullish on energy more broadly, he would go from some of the more levered plays. So I don't think that's necessarily it. Maybe it's a hedge as part of his portfolio, to Tim's point, you know, sort of these midstream plays. I'm not sure, but I don't think, I think the market thought it's a bullish bet on energy. I'm not certain really that's the case. To me, it's more of a hedge of a broader portfolio package he's looking at, in my opinion. All of this uh, deal talk got us thinking with Berkshire's uh, cash pile still sitting at more than $100 billion. So what should the Oracle of Omaha buy next? Uh, let's go, Dan, first. You know, Wilf, we were talking about the banks before. Obviously, Warren Buffett um, has been a great investor in financial assets over his multi-decade career. He's done it in times of crisis, and he's gotten some great, great deals. You know, if he's looking for value, and I think he's always looking for value, I suspect he's a 2% or a little less than a 2% holder of J.P. Morgan. And that's one, to me, it seems like that Jamie Dimon, the CEO, is not going to go out getting massively disintermediated by the likes of PayPal and Venmo and some of these other startups. When you look at J.P. Morgan's valuation, you look at its market cap, um, and, you know, it's basically its market cap is equal to Square and PayPal combined. If I were him, I'd be buying this thing all night and day. And then the other one is just a great brand, and it fits into the same uh, in, into the same trade in a way, is American Express. He's the largest shareholder with about 19%. I'd just be adding to that, too, and really tweaking these managements to kind of get more in the game and make sure that they do not get massively disintermediated by the likes of PayPal and Square. That, that said, the, the question is whether he would do that. We know he was a seller of banks in Q1 from the Q1 filings, uh, sold out of Goldman Sachs in total in Q1, and Goldman Sachs has rallied a lot from them, sold a bit of JP Morgan, sold a bit of U.S. Bancor, and we also know separately, though not filed yet, uh, in Q2 there was a big seller, particularly in May, of Wells Fargo. We don't know who that was. So the question is whether he's particularly likely to go into the banks again, though, as you say, he long-term was uh, always uh, into them. Tim, what, what do you think he should go into next? Well, I, I'm going to agree with Mr. Uh, Dark Storm Clouds painting to his right, Dan Nathan, on this one, because I, I think what Warren Buffett does is he goes to out-of-favor out industries, but places he knows well. So I think he does know the banks well. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say banks as well, but I'm going to say PNC. Um, he, he, he added to that position in May. It's a 50 basis point position. Uh, it's got a fantastic balance sheet. They just sold off their position in BlackRock. Um, they, they raised some cash. It's trading at 0.8 times price to book. Um, significant value here and really one of the high quality uh, you know, U.S. banks. Um, so if anything, I think he's through difficult times. He nibbled at that one. Uh, and I think he could nibble some more. But I think he stays with banks because this is what he knows. Uh, and Guy, where do you think he should go? You know, Dan made fun of my age earlier on the show, but I chose not to say anything. But what I will say is a few decades prior to me being born, U.S. Steel was created in 1901 by J.P. Morgan and a number of other luminaries. And if you look, I mean, that stock was off to the races in March of 2018. It was, I think, trading in the mid-40s, and it's been pretty much awful ever since then, in large part due to the, some of the trade wars with the, with the Chinese. But... At this level, Warren Buffett could buy the second largest producer of steel in the United States, I think, and an iconic brand for probably less than $4 billion. So it won't happen, but I think U.S. Steel would send the right signal to a lot of people if he forayed into it at this point. Well, we will make sure that Becky Quick asks him about all of those companies in the next uh, Warren Buffett interview. Uh, thank you for those picks, gents. Uh, coming up, we're counting down to the opening bell in Asia. What you can expect after last night's massive 
rally uh, in Shanghai stocks, putting Shanghai up 10% or so for the year. We'll take you live to the region. And later, uh, you've got questions for us. We've got the answers. Tweet us your biggest stock questions. We'll tackle them uh, live. Fast is back in two. Welcome back to this special edition of Fast Money. Uh, we're just a few hours away from the market open in Asia. Will stocks follow through after China had its best day in more than a year uh, overnight? Sam Vardis is in Sydney to get us ready for tomorrow's first trade. Sam, uh, what can we expect? Hi there. Well, signs that China's economic recovery is picking up speed is certainly expected to continue to put wind in the sails of equity markets in this part of the world. And certainly down under here in Australia, uh, which really counts on China as its biggest trading partner. All eyes have been on uh, China's blue chips, which hit a five-year high yesterday, certainly shrugging off any of these geopolitical tensions we're seeing in coronavirus fears. Analysts say it's the beginning of a rising trend, and that is stimulating markets in the region. Uh, investor sentiment is likely uh, to continue today to be driven by a front page editorial in Chinese state media, uh, which said China needed a bull market to build strength. Of course, Chinese shares have been given a boost by a lot of this upbeat economic data, which is really fueling hopes uh, of a speedier recovery than other parts of the world, which are now seeing a spike in coronavirus cases, but also lockdowns. Investors have also been cheering plans to actually reform China's capital markets, and that includes a revamp of the benchmark index to include and attract more high-tech strength and get rid of some of those uh, loss-making companies. And of course, that is significant given this broader technology dispute that we are seeing unfolding between China and the United States. China has even brought in a US-style uh, registration-based system for its NASDAQ-style starboard. And all eyes are on uh, SMIC. That is a big Chinese chipmaker, uh, which kicks off its Shanghai share sale today. Uh, it could be the biggest listing uh, on the uh, Chinese starboard since it uh, opened in July last Year. So we are keeping a very close eye on that as well as its listing date. Uh, experts also say uh, that, uh, you know, the Chinese market does continue to believe that there will be uh, further easing by China's central bank uh, to try to help cushion the blow of some of these impacts from the coronavirus. Back to you. Sam Vardas, thanks so much for that. Let's trade it. Uh, Tim Seymour, we've got the Shanghai index up 9% year to date. Shenzhen, the smaller index, uh, up 23% year to date. Are you a buyer? I am. And I, I tell you what, I think that China is pushing national champion companies. Really interesting to, to hear what, what she said. Also, they're, they're essentially recrafting the indices and they're taking out uh, a lot of the stodgy, you know, bank and industrial plays um, to have a more tech heavy index. Um, but you don't have to go very far. I mean, look, look at Alibaba. We talked it in the five o'clock hour, but uh, take a look at a five year chart on that. Uh, and take a look at it, at it, essentially a three-month chart on that. First of all, all-time highs. Um, this thing's running like a deer through the woods. And you talk about valuations in mega cap tech. This is probably one of the most interesting peg ratios out there. So uh, Alibaba, Tencent continue to be places to go. And, and even watch Samsung. I know that's not Shanghai, but you talk about the heavyweight mega cap tech companies in the EEM or in the MSCI EM. Uh, and Samsung has also been quietly on the move and I think has more momentum behind it. I think this trade has a lot of room to Ron EM is just breaking out. Still to come on this special hour of Fast Money, we've been sorting through all of your stock questions. We'll have some answers for you when we come back. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's time for our traders to answer some of your questions. Some of you Fast Money fans sent us video questions uh, via Twitter. The first one is from Jose in Missouri. My name is Jose, and I am from Missouri. 
My question to you is about the Albemarle Corporation, stock ticker ALB. During the last 3, 6, and 12 months, the stock price has increased by 36, 11, and 23% respectively, fueled by a belief that there will be an increased demand in lithium in the near future. The company's balance sheet is really solid. However, I am very concerned about the business cycle we are in. Do you believe that there will be a run on this stock, and is this a good entry point? Thanks to Jose Missouri for that question. Tim, what's the answer? Yeah, Jose, I, I think Albemarle, which, which was, first of all, a hot stock, uh, kind of 2016, 2017, um, as the whole concept around EV and, and, and lithium energy and batteries was uh, you know, front and center, obviously, um, continues to be. Um, but the cycle here, certainly uh, overproduction, as with any commodity, especially in specialty metals, uh, you can have overproduction. You can have overinvestment into CapEx. And I think that was one of the issues here. This stock has almost completely round-tripped that move. Uh, and certainly the, the, the crisis in COVID-19 took the stock down to those levels uh, which started the 2016 rally. I like this trade. I, I like this trade for some of the other themes we've talked about as they relate to China, uh, as they relate to the dollar, and as they relate to commodities. But specialty metals, um, I think, uh, are, are continuing to make a move higher. Uh, next question is from Tim in Delaware. He's uh, tweeted his question to us. He asks uh, if he should buy Walmart here on weakness as it's off its uh, high by around $15. Uh, Guy, what's, uh, what's your take on that one? Tim, thanks for your question. Thanks for watching. To your point, I mean, this stock made an all-time high, 133 and change, I think, on April 17th, and it's been basically sideways to lower ever since. I think you're going to get an opportunity to buy it closer to 112, which is a level, if you go back and look, in February that we sort of went sideways at for quite some time. I think they report in early August. My concern there is valuation at 22 times next year's numbers and the fact that their costs are probably going higher. But I think if you're patient, Tim, you're going to get to buy it a tad cheaper than where it is right now. Our last question is from Joe in New York. Hi, my name is Joe. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I want to know about uh, Norwegian Cruise Lines, NCLH. Uh, I'm interested in this space because I think there's good opportunity when COVID's over and people want to go on vacation. Also, right now, compared to the, its 52-week high, I, I believe there's a lot of opportunity. So if you could just give your opinion on the space, I know it might be a while before things go up, but long-term, I think it might be good. If you agree, please let me know. Thank you. Dan, do you agree? Uh, yeah. Hey, Joe. You know, I mean, listen, cruise lines are definitely going to come back. And I think the lack of visibility as far as the hospitality space in general is the big issue right now. And I think that uh, big ships that move around and are really uh, isolated are going to be the last thing that likely come back. So, you know, you know, there's an old saying in Vegas, when you love somebody, you got to trust them. Right, guy? And you know what? Let me just tell you guys this. I trust Guy. I'd go with the Windicator. I don't know if you're a fast money viewer also there, Joe. But Guy's got the Windicator. I'd rather go for the cruise line that's basically in one place, and that would be win. But I think you're right. If you're thinking about it long term here a little bit, um, if you start picking at Norwegian and you use something like a 10 as a stop, the stock has made a series of higher highs of late. So, you know, long term view, 10 stop. There we go. Uh, by the way, speaking of Norwegian, we've got a big interview coming up tomorrow morning, uh, an exclusive with the CEOs of Norwegian and Royal Caribbean, uh, how uh, those uh, 
Two cruise uh, rivals are teaming up to improve industry safety. That's at 10 a.m. Eastern time. You don't want to miss that. Up next, your final trade. Welcome back. We've got some breaking news. We've got a date for that big tech testimony on Capitol Hill. Tim Cook, Jeff Bezos, Sunder Pichai and Mark Zuckerberg will all appear before the House Judiciary Committee on July 27th. Guy, this is a, a sector that's going to be under, uh, under scrutiny, particularly, particularly with the election coming up. Uh, will it weigh on stock prices until then? No, I don't, you know, I don't think so. You had that Google headline a couple months ago. The stock looked right past it. These names seem impervious to any headlines like that, so I would say no. Either way, it'll be must-watch uh, must, uh, viewing when that uh, testimony does take place. Let's pivot. Final trades. Dan, what are you going for? Yeah, you know, Intel was downgraded today at Goldman to a sell. You don't see that often. The stock traded up. I think it's okay here. Um, I think you play this one to the mid-60s to the upside. Tim? Well, uh, great having you. Alibaba ticking, uh, running higher with emerging markets. Guys, we've got time for one word. Watch stock. Nike. There we go. We're out of time. Thanks for watching this special edition of Fast Money. We'll be back tomorrow for the full two hours. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.